0: Okay, on three, oh, we'll do five.
1: <laughs> <laughs> using pressure, using pain. no, five. But you can do no, no. no, seven no seven got higher higher that way.
0: Hi, this is John Dolin, and I am a douchebag.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Mormonism
0: picked me up off this path of not going the right direction and set me back down in this whole new life.
3: And yet, it's
4: not my fault that the story doesn't add up. It's not my fault that the facts don't lead to a way of putting this back together in a way that you go, yeah, all right, that makes sense. I believe again. Like, that's yeah. not my fault. That's not my problem.
0: Really? Are you sure about that, Bill?
2: So it's you. choose to become inactive or to leave the restored Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? What will you do?
1: The decision
2: to walk no more with the Church members and the Lord's Chosen Leaders will have a long-term impact that can't always be seen right now.
0: This is Infants on Thrones. Baby stairs. You want someone to preach to you? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. You want religion, do you? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with, with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything. This world of money.
1: the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone
0: all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and it is january 2022 which means that the Infants on Thrones podcast will be turning 10 years old this year, which means that I'll be doing a lot of reflecting. And throughout this month of January, I'll be bringing you with me along this self-reflective journey out of Mormonism and into something else. So I'll be re-releasing some older episodes featuring John DeLynn, Bill Reel, and others, as well as introducing you to some new episodes in this series of 13 that I'm calling Reflections. Now, before I get into today's episode, I want to let you know that I will be presenting and leading a few breakout sessions at the Thrive Beyond Religion Conference in Mesa, Arizona on Saturday, January 22nd. It's going to be a full day, live, in-person event. Tickets are only $39. There's limited availability, so purchase ahead of time. I'll put a link to the Thrive event on the Infants on Throats website under this episode heading. And I'm going to be leading two breakout sessions. The first one is called Unplugging from the Mormon Matrix, an interactive group discussion. And the second is called Bathing with God, an interactive group discussion around shifting beliefs or disbeliefs in God. I'll also be presenting The Wise Man Built His House Upon the What? Searching for Foundational Rocks in a World Constructed Entirely of Constantly Shifting Sand. And I hope to see you there. Now, I'd also like to remind you to come and support this podcast on Patreon. If you have a few dollars that you can throw my way each month to say thank you for providing this content, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you didn't know already, I am a certified holistic life coach, I'm also in the middle of a master's program in clinical mental health counseling, and I offer a free 30-minute consultation to any potential new clients. So if you're looking for someone to help you learn how to create greater inner peace and not get so triggered by things outside of your control, shoot me an email at infantsonthrones at gmail.com, and let's talk. It's absolutely one of my favorite things to do. And now for today's episode. All right, this is episode 777. I think that's like a little bit better than 666. Anyway, it's called Reflections, Anthology of Awesomeness, which is a fitting follow-up to the previous Ayahuasca Story episode because I recorded and released this one the day after that interview with psychologist Rachel Harris. And I was still clearly basking in the afterglow of that first Ayahuasca ceremony. You can hear the light-hearted, playful, manic giddiness in my voice as I introduced this compilation of listener essays. Now, I've, I absolutely loved being able to provide a platform for listeners to chime in, record the essay, send it in, and I still find it incredibly rewarding that so many heeded the call to share their unique experiences on this somewhat common thing called a Mormon faith crisis. Now, the original Anthology of Awesomeness episode, which I published February 21st, 2018, was three and a half hours long. A compilation of 14 listener essays interspersed with different parody songs and other little infant goodies. Now, I trimmed this one to just under two hours. And I have to say that one of the essays that I cut, I found really disturbing as i was listening back to it this time around and i'm going to talk more about why and what that's all about in a patreon sharing time episode so if any of you want to hear more about that you can sign up for patreon if you're not already there and oh yeah remember that story that i told rachel and michael about the exquisitely beautiful hindi woman that i saw in an ayahuasca vision well now you know why i started this episode the way that i did so Once upon a time or possibly maybe twice in a small village in northern India there lived a woman and she She was beautiful. She was exquisite. Inside and out. She was raised in a family and community of privilege. And she selflessly shared that privilege with those outside of her community. Those who were less privileged. She was a pillar of service and a source of joy and love and comfort to everyone around her. She made a real difference in people's lives, and she was loved and well-respected by all who knew her. But her life was filled with tragedy. The worst of it, her three beloved children, all under the age of 10, died as a result of a horrible betrayal from one of her closest friends. Grief consumed her. The light went out of her eyes. Her smiles became an empty show, a show that she put on for others, but inside she felt nothing. She continued to serve. She continued to play her part. She continued to change others' lives. But throughout the rest of her life, she was simply going through the motions, still making an important difference in the world, but unable to feel the love and the admiration that others had for her. And worst of all, she was unable to feel the love and the happiness that she had once been such a powerful source of, that love and happiness that had once burned so brightly in herself that she so selflessly shared with those around her. She ended her life never being able to feel that, never receiving back the joy that she had earned. What if I told you that this woman is you? And yes, men, I'm speaking to you as well. What if this woman now somehow lived inside of you? What if she could experience what you experienced and she could feel what you feel? What if this were some form of resurrection, some kind of chance for her to receive what was her cosmic karmic due, <laughs> and that this was your chance to provide that to her and also receive that joy along with her? What would you do if I told you that this story were real? Because I'm telling you this story with real words and you're reacting to it with a real response, you're having real thoughts, real emotions. What are they? Why are they there? And what are you going to do about that? Now that you felt them, felt them? Welcome back to A Softer, Gentler, Infants on Thrones. I'm the softer, gentler Glenn Hosland. And I just want to thank every one of these amazing authors who were brave enough to be vulnerable, to face their fears, and boldly share these listener essays with all of you who've heard them. I hope these essays have been meaningful for you. They have been absolutely meaningful for me. Transformative. Honestly. (laughs) So... If you like these last two weeks of daily content from Infants on Thrones, thanks to listeners willing to share with other listeners, then I have good news for you. Great news for you. We're going to do this again as many times as we can. And if you didn't like these last two weeks of daily content from Infants on Thrones, thanks to listeners willing to share with other listeners, then I have even better news for you. You have figured out something to avoid that makes you grumpy so you don't have to be grumpy you can avoid oh or or if you like to be grumpy oh brother do I have more grump food up my sleeve for you so <laughs> crazy. because over the past two weeks I've received more essays from other listeners who want to share with other listeners and I want to continue to encourage that. I want to encourage you to be as creative and thoughtful as you want to be. It doesn't have to be a bunch of bells and whistles. It doesn't have to be high-polished content, quality production. It just has to be heartfelt, something that you care about because it's going to touch other people. And I've seen that with this contest. I love that. I love that about this contest. I'm a cheerleader on the side now going rah, rah, rah. This is awesome. <laughs> So there's many ways to create a listener essay, and you see that here with this collection we have today. Um, you see it with the little introduction that I gave, with fictitious stories like I shared in the introduction. You can do things that just mean something to you and have fun with it. And so as soon as I have enough, uh, somewhere around you know 10 to 15 uh, new essays, we'll do this again. So. Um, looking forward to that. But for today, I've compiled all 14 of these essays into one episode, padded with a few little extra goodies and surprises and to give you all a chance to listen to them again, or maybe you're going to be hearing them for the first time. And I want to remind you and also encourage you to go to our website, infantsonthrones.com and fill out the survey that's associated with each one of these essays. There's one survey for each essay for each of the posts of the previously posted. essays. You can vote for the one that you want to win. Uh, You can provide private feedback that will be sent to the author as soon as this contest is over. You can also share your name and email address if you want to so that uh, maybe you and the author can connect and have a discussion about these things that you heard uh, that meant something to you and share something that you mean with them. It's all about sharing. And of course, the winner of this essay contest will receive $218, because it's 2018, right? Yeah, I'll get that now, right? It's kind of obvious, like, there's a two, and then a one, and a, okay. Second place will win half of that, $109, and the third place, $50. Now, you can vote through the end of February. The winners will be announced in early March, Thank you again for everyone who participated, and now, here are all the 14 listener essays. And The first one comes from Leah, and is titled, My Super Excruciating Mormonism.
5: I am a person who is deeply steeped in Mormonism, like waterlogged in Mormonism. A person whose life was defined, not just influenced, by the teachings and culture of this religion. Before I could even speak myself, I was being taught about this one true church and how lucky I was to have been born into it. I've spent my entire life learning, searching, pondering, and praying. Countless hours in those metal chairs. All of my major life decisions tightly coupled with exercising faith in the church. Years trying with all my might, mind, and strength to integrate these teachings into my personal values and to assimilate this culture into my identity. Honestly, it has been a process I can only describe as excruciating. Doctrines about homosexuality were always something I struggled to understand. As a 15-year-old in California in 2008, I was warned that the fight against gay marriage was the great test of faith and righteousness of my generation. Traditional families, like my own, they said, must be protected. All this talk made me uneasy. I was straight, and my family was one of these so-called traditional families, and yes, it was wonderful and worthy of protection, but something just felt wrong. Gay people didn't seem evil, or like they were threatening my family at all. As I grew older, the tension inside me increased. Even as the church became more sensitive, the strict doctrine still conflicted deeply with my conscience and my understanding of the world. I spent many nights crying, feeling my core torn in half, pleading with God to illuminate why his church would teach something that felt so wrong to me. Finally, of course, I hit a breaking point with this and with other issues I had with the church. I grew older and more sure of myself and my values. I learned to listen and trust my own conscience and experiences. I realized that no one can talk to God any more than I can. I knew that if there was a God watching me, there was no way he could be disappointed in my decision. I was doing what I knew deep inside me to be right. It was just like they told me in Sunday school about peer pressure. It can be scary to stand up for what you believe in when it goes against the grain, but to stifle what you know to be right is to stifle your own integrity. So I left the church. As many reading this will understand, it was a painful process. But, of course, any confusion or offense I may have felt when hearing anti-gay remarks in church pales in comparison to the suffering of LGBT Mormons. A deep sense of shame and self-loathing is instilled in them as they are repeatedly told that an unchosen biological characteristic of theirs is evil and wrong. They learn to repress and abhor their natural hopes and dreams, not to mention their human need of romantic connection and too often they're completely unable to speak up for fear of outing themselves as they get crushed over and over again by the invalidating attitudes around them. Just about everyone knows someone who has experienced the struggle, whether they know about it or not. Go looking and you'll find countless accounts of people's once healthy emotional states deteriorating into suicidal ideation. In this case it's not only a symptom of depression, but actually an effect of these specific circumstances slowly sucking the will to live out of these people. If anecdotes don't convince you, the youth suicide statistics should speak for themselves. The much-talked-about Mormon and Gay website says this regarding the tricky situation of a Mormon parent with a gay child. Quote, unconditional love doesn't have to mean condoning, end quote. Those practicing this approach should remember that it is possible to love someone and yet harm them. By not supporting and yes condoning what is necessary for our children to be happy and healthy we are hurting them. We're teaching them self-hatred and stripping them of hope for their future. The effects are too often tragic. I know Mormon doctrine intimately and I feel it is a rich and in many ways a beautiful faith tradition. Overall I respect it and those who cling to it. But I refuse to respect or tread around this aspect of their teachings anymore. The consequences are so much bigger than offense or disrespect. There is abuse happening. Allowing gay children to be pushed to live celibate lives under the threat of salvation, no matter how much we claim to love them, is abusive. It is withholding an essential human need from them. It is threatening to their physical lives. People are trying to be more sensitive these days. But honestly, I've grown tired of well-meaning people in these communities shrugging and saying, it's such a complicated situation. We don't know all the answers. God works in mysterious ways, and we just need to be patient for further revelation. It's certainly a trial for them and their families. I'll pray for them. As a church, we've been standing idly by through mixed messages over the years from our leadership, Some were openly hateful than others, but all of them invalidating and soul-crushing to anyone who deviates. It's a perversion, an attack on the family. Love the sinner, hate the sin. There's a plan for you and a place for you and we love you, but... You know that dream and hope that gives you the will to live? No, no, not that. So sure, it's just a difficult situation or a controversial issue for many of us in the church. But for the actual human beings who are the subjects of this debate... These are their lives, their most personal hopes, their most intimate dreams, their state of existence every day. It is a living nightmare for them to be expected to live their lives void of such a critical need as human attachment. We are literally killing people, just the same as if we were withholding food or water from them. In response to my leaving the church, people often suggest to me that even if it's not completely true, it's still a great place to raise a family and be part of a community. I hope it is clear at this point why I disagree. No, I do not believe the church is a good place to raise children. No, I do not believe that any amount of community activities or service opportunities make up for the pain and suffering in lives lost. When it comes to official teachings and policies, there seems to be a line in the sand. Some may try to stay and invoke change from the inside, but honestly, I can no longer stomach it, and I wouldn't blame anyone else for feeling the same way. So, to those struggling to assimilate this religious tradition with your personal values, I say this. If you don't feel right about something, really give things a second thought. Trust your conscience. Think deeply. Don't put the blinders on. Find the confidence inside yourself to live true to what you know is right. If you believe in God, he would be proud of you for doing just that. Stand up for people who are being hurt and marginalized. It's not just a matter of respect, offense, debate, or contention— it's a matter of human life.
4: Baby, come back. Any kind of fool could truly see. There was something in everything about you. Baby, come back.
1: You could blame it all on me. I was wrong. I was wrong.
6: Maybe they're right. Maybe
7: there is something the matter with me. I just don't see how a person who feels love for other people could be bad. Look at this church, isn't it neat? My family and friends, my whole world here complete. Wouldn't you know I'm a girl, a girl who has everything. Activity days, girls camp too. Great Sunday dresses and great Sunday shoes. Looking around here, you think, sure, it has everything. I've sung hymns and borne testimonies plenty, had group dates to stake dances galore. Dear John RMs, I've done 20, but who cares? No big deal, I want more. I've got a secret that no one knows. When I'm in love, sometimes it's with women. Not that that's wicked or gross or that I'm a... What's that word again? Oh, apostate. I love the gospel that teaches love. I learned about service, forgiveness, charity. Even shutting my eyes to that. What's that all around me at church? Judgment and hypocrisy. I want to walk I want to run Being a Mormon's fulfilling and fun But can I be Who I want to be And be part of this world? What would I give If I could live out in the open? But now they say If you are gay You'll impact your kids Guess I should stay Inside where it's safe And I'll just repress my emotions Could be healthy To be stealthy And just conform Cause I just want to love In the church I love Want to have children forever Families Don't want to hurt them Or make them What's the word? Second class kids When's it my turn? Why can't I? children from me, hostage they be, to be part of his world.
0: That was my daughter, Shaylee. She recorded that when she was in a real hurry to get over to her friend's house. I just remember how she's like, okay, can I be done now, Dad? Can I go? (laughs) She's awesome. (laughs) It's my daughter, Shaylee. Awesome. She's so cool. And that was a song that she uh, sang for the album that we did. um, Album. (laughs) Disney songs for alienated Mormon kids back, uh, you may remember, with the November policy change a couple years back. Thank you, Shaylee, for doing that. This next essay is remarkably unremarkable. I I know that might sound kind of mean coming from me to say, but, you know, trust me, it really, well, it's titled Remarkably Unremarkable Me. The essay is actually quite remarkable as evidenced by the fact that, well, I don't want to give it away, but maybe, maybe this is our leading vote getter right now. And maybe uh, it's spoken to so many people that it has... Maybe twice the amount of votes and kind of leaving the rest in the dust. Maybe, maybe. There's still time. There's still time at the end of the month. But this is from Liz, and it's titled Remarkably Unremarkable Me. <laughs> <laughs>
8: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have the hardest time knowing how to start these things. Well, actually, I have a hard time starting a lot of things because I struggle with introductions in general. When I introduce myself, I never know what to say beyond my own name. Some people are really good at describing themselves.
9: How would I describe myself? Three words. Hardworking. Alpha male. Jackhammer.
8: Me, not so much. What should I say? Hello, my name is Liz, and I am an unremarkable person. Now, have I always been unremarkable? I don't think so, but I am now. I have been aware of my tediously boring identity for 712 days, which also happens to be exactly how many days I have been out of the Mormon church. At least I think that's how long it's been since I left. When do you officially leave? When you refuse callings? When you take off your garments? I don't know about you, but for me, my official departure date was the day I stopped paying tithing. I mean, something inside of you really shifts when you decide it would be easier to risk literal posthumous burning than to keep spending three hours at church. After I stopped attending church, I almost immediately became aware that I am remarkably unremarkable.
1: If that's a veiled criticism about me, I won't hear it, and I won't respond to it.
8: Anything I've got to say about me is the same that everyone else has got to say about themselves. I am Liz. I grew up in Salt Lake. I went to the same high school that my parents went to. After I turned 16, I dated the first boy who smiled at me in seminary. We dated for two years, and I never did anything outside of the parameters and the strength of youth because I was more scared of angering God than I was horny. I went to BYU, I sent off a missionary, I went on a mission. I got married before I was ready, I had kids before I was ready, and now I stay at home with them.
6: I totally hear you. Um, I also don't like what you're saying. Do you see how unremarkable I am?
8: I wanted to share a great story here that would properly introduce me to the infant's universe one that would set me apart. But the thing is, it seems that Mormonism has eliminated anything in my life that would make me memorable, and it's turned me into a very proper 1950s-era robot.
9: We are
1: robots.
8: I think I used to be unique. I think I remember having characteristics and goals that were special and different from most of the people around me. I can't be certain when exactly I switched to this bland version of myself, but a pretty strong case could be made for July 2003, which coincidentally is when I became a missionary. Now for me, my mission was when I stopped being true to my unique self and started completely obeying the church voices yelling in my ears. And, and let me explain this a little bit better should you be getting nervous with me talking about hearing voices. We all go through life listening to voices that come from both within and outside of our own heads, right? I mean, I know there's a lot of, way, a lot of ways to describe this experience, moral code, intuition, but I go with an inner voice idea because, you know, still small voice, Mormon childhood and all. So our voice tells us about the person that we want to be and the things that we want to do. But we also have all these external voices from different places telling us who we should be and what we should think and what we should aspire to. And maybe those external voices are also telling us what temperature our drink should be and how long Jesus wants our shorts. You know, things of that nature. Now if you're lucky, most of the time these internal and external voices are saying a lot of the same things. But unfortunately they don't always agree. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest conundrums of the human experience. What to do when the voices on the outside and the voices on the inside don't agree. Which voice do you listen to? Who gets to decide who you are and what you'll do? And it seems like the natural answer would be to always go with your gut and listen to your own voice, right? Here's the heart of the matter. The sneaky thing is, is the LDS church taught me to ignore the internal and obey the external. And guys, this makes me mad. It fills me with rage and regret. Did I ever make any decision for myself? Have I had any control at all over my life or have I been fooling myself all this time into thinking I was getting personal revelation when I was really just receiving telegrams in my head directly from the church office building? I was taught to only trust the external voices while ignoring my own. Ignore what's going on in your head, even if it's screaming that a situation doesn't feel right. No, God! No, God, please, no! No! Your internal no should always become an external yes. Do whatever it takes to get the internal and external voices to align, even if it means gagging your internal voice and hitting it over the head with a Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, you can probably think of a few instances in your own life where you wanted to say no, but external church pressures made you say yes. I'll help you remember if you can't recall anything. Remember that young girl that you met on your mission whose less active parents had died in a car crash before she was baptized? And now that she was older, she had questions about the church and the afterlife in general. Remember how she asked you through fearful tears if she really wouldn't be with her mom and dad and see them again if she didn't get baptized into the Mormon church? Remember how every part of yourself was screaming, no, that doesn't feel right. But you told her yes, yes. And remember how that makes you sick and ashamed to think about still? Remember when you were 25 and a hot three seconds after you started dating your now husband, people screamed at you to get married because you were on the precipice of Mormon spinsterhood? Remember how no part of you was ready for marriage and the nose filled every ounce of space in your head, but you said yes and got married a few months later and then made yourself and your husband miserable for the first few years? Well, no means yes no matter how you feel, so I guess I did the right thing. Remember when you fulfilled a lifelong dream of being accepted into medical school, but were told not to go and start a family instead? Remember how that felt wrong and you wanted to say no to that council, but you didn't have the courage to listen to yourself? Oh, and remember the temple? It is a place
2: of ruin and despair.
8: Oh, it is the pinnacle of Mormon worship, and also the place to go for a quintessential no means yes experience. Do you hate the temple? Does it make you physically ill for years to go and agree to a place a man between yourself and a loving God? To accept a lesser fate for the eternities? No, nope, you don't want to do that. Too bad. No means yes here and shut up and bow your head and say it. Say it. Say yes. Ignore anything and everything that's going on in that head of yours. Veil it. Bow it and say yes. I feel like that was negative. Too negative? I'm being too negative. I don't know. You can tell me later. But here's some good news. I have been out of the church long enough that I can say that the external voices are no longer affecting my every thought and action. When I wake up on a Sunday morning and realize that my lazy parental ass has run out of milk, I run to the store and no voice is telling me that that's wrong. Later that day, when I take my kids to the beach, I no longer check over my shoulder to see if the devil himself on the water is paddling up on a surfboard to drag me down to the bottom. And when I admit out loud that I would prefer to be spending part of my day at work rather than at home all the time with my kids, I no longer feel like I'm going against some preordained personal role or disappointing legions of ancestral spirits just floating around judging me all the time. So this is big. The external voices are losing power every day. However, after ignoring myself for decades, do I even have an internal guiding system anymore? Have I abused and ignored my voice into non-existence? No. I am happy to report that my internal voice is still alive, and it is not still, and it is not small. It is confident and proudly shrill. Daily, this voice describes to me a woman who is badass, accomplished, fearless, and remarkable. I am not this woman yet, because while I can hear my internal voice and I pay attention to it, I am still trying to figure out how to listen to it and do the things that it tells me to do. It's scary. How do you make this switch? What is the difference between me and all the post-Mormons out there that seem to figure out how to do and be all the things that they want? Why am I still doing all the same things that I was doing when I was active? Everything inside of me is different, but the only external change that I have allowed is a few more ear piercings. I'm stagnant. It's scary to follow a voice you've never followed before. It's exhilarating and terrifying to navigate life and its constant barrage of decisions all on your own. I'm actually such a scaredy cat that it took me nearly two months to work up the courage to submit this essay. Participating in a community like this is something I wouldn't have done before, but the woman in my head would do it, so I'm listening and I'm trying. I left the Mormon Church, and sure, I now have exactly zero close friends, my family relationships are strained and sometimes a little awkward. I'm starting at square one on a career in my mid-thirties with people that are a full decade younger than me, but I think this is all okay. If my faith transition were to end today, it wouldn't be a happy ending, but it would be a hopeful one. Because I now get to exist in a world where no means no, and yes means yes. I am Liz, and I am still unremarkable, but I might not always be.
2: It that it takes a lot of work to indoctrinate, and when they mm. see that the kids aren't getting that early indoctrination, they right. panic.
0: If they, if they see that they're watching too many cartoons or they're playing Xbox too much, or they're you know, they'll, they'll try and rope them in exactly like Randy's saying,
2: friends, sing together. La 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 la, friends do things together. La 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 la, friends
4: laugh together. Oh man, I'd be the worst parent. That's horrible.
2: (laughs) Friends make graphs together. I can't wait to fuck up a kid I'm gonna
1: It's about time Jake What are you you, 25 now? There's our easter egg Friends help you when you're in danger Friends are people who are not strangers Friends help you shift into a new place Tell you if you've got food on your face Friends are the ones on whom you can
2: depend He's my friend, he's not my friend Friends are the ones who are there in the end He's my friend, they're not my friends Yeah,
0: I mean I love
2: I love lying
0: to children It is my favorite thing in the whole world is telling them lies and getting them to believe it. Um so maybe I should raise them in the church. If you trip over I'll catch you
1: fall If you get my dick, come on break your bones. If you get drunk and vomit on me, i will make sure come on, come on, you get up If you cross the road oh, and a drunk oh, struck you, I'll scrape you up and reconstruct you. i you up if you're depressed. If you get murdered I'll avenge your death nice. well I've
0: got my I've got my almost five year old convinced that I literally cannot hear what she's saying unless she asks it in a really polite way. Ha <laughs> ha <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Friends walk together. <laughs> la, 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 la. Pop and pop together. <laughs> <laughs> Me and him together. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. Me and okay. him <laughs> forever. <laughs> <laughs> My six-year-old, sweet, sweetest kid. He would be such a great Mormon. Um, he believes in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny. Um, but if you try to ask him about Jesus, man, he's not real. <laughs> but the Easter Bunny, I mean, Easter Bunny.
1: Friends go jogging at the track. Friends borrow money, never pay it back. Friends do not let friends do
2: crack. Friends go out and grab a snack. Friends drink beer or in the sun. Unlike girlfriends, they don't
5: mind if you have more than one. Friends tell you when you flies undone. Flies undone.
2: but man, because the, the evidence of the Easter bunnies he leaves a basket, the evidence of Santa Claus is he leaves presents. There's evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know? That's true. These are all good points. It's but
1: what true. what evidence <laughs> what evidence do you have for Jesus? My Uncle John had a special friend. They dressed alike, his name was Ben. I've never seen two friends like them. They were very, very friendly men. Boom the boom boom. Friends, 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 boom la boom. Friends, 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 friends.
0: This next essay is The Atheist and the Humanist by Delaney Darko and has a shout-out to one of my favorite people on this planet, Randy Snyder. I'm going si to make pa pa a fucking
2: point because si I'm tired of going, bit, 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 bit. Ah. I'm making my point.
0: Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it bit, bit,
2: bit, 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 bit. Go for
0: it, man. Touch this. Go for it, Delaney.
6: The Atheist and the Humanist by Delaney Darko The Atheist and the Humanist were fighting for the crown. The Atheist beat the Humanist, but then was feeling down. Arrogance is widespread, so try to pipe down and focus on understanding what's in another's crown. This is a story about finding the balance between your inner Randy Snyder and the other part of you who doesn't want to be a total asshole to the believers in your life. It's a story that starts with reconciling our past as people of faith with our current standing as staunch skeptics. So let's start at the beginning. Former Mormons, you know how this goes. One day you are weeping over the pulpit in Relief Society about how Sister Olson selflessly brought you tomato soup after you birthed another child. Now you are posting selfies on the ex-Mormon subreddit. Toasting a glass of gin and tonic to your fellow heathens with glistening, bare, virgin shoulders on a church-free Sunday. You were all in, a righteous son or daughter of God, called to represent Jesus Christ in the 11th hour. Now look at you, getting drunk on the snark that drips from ex-Mormon forums and wallowing in the internet fallout of bad church PR. I went from goddess-in-training to a tattooed, coffee-drinking, social justice-pushing atheist. What the hell happened? What the hell? A crisis of faith, deconversion, a fall from grace, sleeping with Satan. Bottom line is, we don't believe anymore. The details of how it happened are complicated, to say the least. The poor soul who ever asked a recovering Mormon why they left the church. I have vomited my church-induced anger on a handful of people, and it's never pretty. We send out mass emails, we write the long Facebook posts, we write letters to our parents, spouses, and children. We try to legitimize our disbelief with loved ones so that they will accept us. And even if they don't leave the church themselves, at least they know why we did. The evolution from devout to disenchanted has a traceable path. To those of us who have gone through it, hearing another's journey of losing their faith rings painfully familiar. Sometimes the only place to commiserate and be free to express our anger is on the internet. So we share our experiences and the things that we have learned and we find ourselves bonding with strangers. We learn we are not alone. We aren't crazy after all. The common experience goes something like this. A collection of doubts, guilt, and unanswered questions build up until a watershed moment roars out of us like a freight train. Somewhere along the way, we had our minds blown, and the universe looks a whole lot bigger. Like a spiritual experience, there has been a shift, and it feels profound. Monochrome to Technicolor, baby, we are reborn. The ex-Mormon moment is now. Over the last few years, we've crept out from the dark corners of the internet into a thriving public community. I don't want to spend time writing about why the church isn't true. That space has already been carved out. I want to think bigger. People are leaving their dead beliefs all over the place. It's bigger than leaving Mormonism. We are part of a broader world community of dissenters with eerily similar stories. Spend time chatting with other ex-Christians or even ex-Muslims and you instantly see the commonality. The religions that once set us apart are now bringing us together as we forsake them. Secularism, humanism, and atheism are more and more amalgamating into a broader platform that leads the world in advancing human rights, scientific discovery, earthly stewardship, and in my opinion, holds humans more ethically accountable than the religious world does. But I want to think bigger still. The back and forth between the religious and secular communities is tiresome. There will always be bad ideas that need to be called into question, especially those that are so steeped in tradition that they often get a pass. But we also have to reach outside of our newfound secular circles. Can we find common ground with the believers in our lives to foster rational conversations and connect on a level that transcends our own moral truth? Or will we go from one flavor of dogma to another, isolating ourselves from anything that disagrees with us? There is often a conundrum in my head that goes something like this. Can I criticize religious ideology and still have meaningful relationships with religious individuals? Sometimes the Mormon church really does make me mad. I keep a pulse on the happenings in the church, and I get angry about certain policies and doctrines that are damaging and hurtful. I get mad that members make excuses for institutionalized practices. By calling it church culture, it's dissed and yet still tolerated. I get mad that no one holds a higher standard to the men who claim to speak for God. I get mad that the church whitewashes its history to inaccurate levels of propaganda. I get mad that facts get coded as anti, therefore null. I get mad when members are complacent in social justice issues because everything outside of the gospel doesn't really matter. That's atheist me. But my husband is still a practicing Mormon. We do have a pretty awesome relationship. It's never been better, actually. We have worked out a good balance to accommodate both of our belief systems. We love to travel, be outdoors, explore the city, rock climb, ride bikes, roller skate, eat well, dance party, parent like nobody's bitches. My parents and siblings are Mormon. I love them. I genuinely like being around these people i couldn't live without my sisters and my awesome genius brother my in-laws are mormon they love everyone they meet they love me like a daughter their children are all down to earth normal people i love them all i have an amazing group of mormon friends where i live they knew from day one i was an atheist nay an apostate they don't care we even talk about issues in the church from time to time Most of the time we talk about birthing and funny things our kids say while simultaneously breastfeeding and pushing a swing. Culturally, I am still very Mormon. I do have a spicy peppering of friends outside of Mormonism, but on the whole, my social network has vastly been Mormon my whole life until I moved out of Utah and left the church. The fact is, I enjoy the dialogue I have with people of faith. It helps me think about things differently. I don't like being surrounded by people who look just like me, think just like me, live just like me. Beep, bop, boop, bop, beep. Ew, that's too robotic. I need a bouquet of people in my life, as much as authenticity can allow. This is humanist me. I like to follow the ex-Muslim subreddit. It's eerily similar to the themes on the ex-Mormon subreddit, and the ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, and black atheism. The stories of leaving one's religion are just as interesting as the religion itself. We are kindred spirits. My secular friends hold a special place in my heart. I listen to Sam Harris. I don't agree with everything he says, and oh my gosh, I can't meditate. Squirrel! Wait, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, hardcore atheists who publicly criticize bad ideas brought to you by religion. You know the scene, Richard Dawkins, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Lawrence Krauss, Majid Nawaz, and black freethinkers to name a few. I'm glad there are people out there having these conversations. All ideas, especially religious ones, should be up for scrutiny. Just because they are special to someone doesn't mean they are untouchable. Atheist me. Just this weekend, I met a Muslim woman my age. She was wearing a hijab. Our kids were playing at the mall play place together. Her daughter was telling me about Moana and Maui. We got talking about library story time, our kids getting sick, and New York City. She's from Brooklyn and recommended some sites in Manhattan for next time we visit. She seemed like a cool, easygoing mom. I hope we bump into each other again to exchange contact info. I don't care one shit of a bird's brain case that she is wearing a hijab or that she is Muslim. Humanist me. Later that day, I'm scrolling Twitter, getting sucked into the hashtag no hijab day movement of ex-Muslim women who unwrap and burn their hijab in defiance. You go, girl. Hell yeah, atheist me. Do you see the whiplash that is going on? I think it speaks to a broader problem that society has to learn to reconcile. There's online life where we speak freely, audaciously even. It's a place to get out the anger and frustration. We can be irreverent, sacrilegious, and laugh at things we once thought holy. Online, we can give a giant middle finger to what's wrong in the world. Then there's real life where we face people, not an ideology. I'm at least self-aware enough to realize the possibility of online sentiments disfiguring how I view people. The World Wide Web can be toxic. You have to constantly self-correct. If you aren't careful, you get sucked into the vitriol. There is a certain type of Mormon that I try not to be, and there's a certain type of atheist I try not to be either. Negative and judgmental. Unfortunately, social media brings that out in all of us. So what's the antidote to the venom of online echo chambers and pitchfork parties? Dialogue respectful, open-minded conversation. We have to work hard at fostering genuine relationships with people outside of our tribe. We have to leave our virtual sanctuaries and talk it out for realsies. Still be critical of bad ideas, but then take your passion off the screen and into something real. Stand up for inequality, get involved in local politics, challenge the status quo, stay thirsty for knowledge, and teach our kids the values that we want to see in the world. While we do this, may we cultivate relationships with believers and non-believers alike, doing the dance of listening and explaining our positions. Progress is slow, but it doesn't happen when we build up walls. I used to view the world in more black and white terms, but now I'm seeing the gray, and the red, blue, green, and neon pink. Humans are complicated creatures and life is incredibly inspiring and sobering all at the same time. It can be overwhelming to take it all in, yet we stumble along, learning and growing into the person we want to be, intelligent, fearless, persistent, and loving. So I'll continue to learn about belief despite my agnosticism, I'll try to stay respectful even if I don't agree. I'll try to empathize with the meaning others find, and I'll always strive to see the good in people and the beauty in our human complexity. I'll try to use my skepticism for good. I know that atheism and humanism are not polar opposites. I know I can be both. I just worry that my search for truth will alienate me into a box. I don't do boxes. I do rainbows. In summary, I might not agree with you, but I love you. Let's go meet for coffee. Oh, you don't drink coffee? Well, you can get whatever you want. I'll be getting coffee. Yeah! If you like what you heard and you want to give my written words some time, please visit my blog. It's www.delaneydarko.wordpress.com. Glenn will put a link to it from the Infants on Throne page. Right, Glenn? Right? Come on, support an up and coming writer. After four years of ideas bouncing around in my head and some horrible first starts, 2018 is my time to put pen to paper and hands to keyboard. Click on over and follow me for some poetry, short stories, book reviews, and updates on my manuscript I'll be writing. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram under Delaney Darko, D-E-L-A-N-E-Y-D-A-R-C-O. Thank you for listening. I am a force for good. I am Delaney Darko.
2: long as they're worthy of your love and acceptance and kindness, then you can love almost like I
10: This next essay is called Choose for Yourself by Ricky. This essay is titled, Nevertheless, Thou Mayest Choose for Thyself.
0: Yeah, but the nevertheless thou mayest part, it was
10: just too long to write on the title, Ricky, so I changed it. (laughs) No no offense. Love you, buddy. The Sunday after my stake completed our pioneer trek, a testimony meeting was held for the youth in the ward. My friends stood up one at a time and told the group that they knew the church was true. I had a great time at Trek, but I was afraid of public speaking and did not plan on bearing my testimony. I figured that there would not be enough time for everyone to speak anyway. Slowly, it dawned on me that there was plenty of time for every person to speak and that my leaders expected us all to get up and recount the spiritual experiences we had had dressed as pioneers. And most of my peers were doing just that. Time was slipping away, and my heart started to race. I realized that I would soon be the last person in the room who hadn't spoken. I felt every eye on me and started to sweat. I put my head down, but I was on the front row and couldn't hide. I hated speaking in front of groups, especially if I didn't have a prepared talk in front of me. Right then, I couldn't think of anything. Finally, the last of my group finished speaking and sat down. A long silence ensued. I sat, sweating, and feeling the eyes of my friends and leaders on me. Eventually, an adult spoke up and and ended the meeting, and my anxiety was replaced with shame. I had done nothing, and yet I knew that I had made my choice. Joseph Smith once called agency, quote, that free independence of mind which heaven has so graciously bestowed upon the human family as one of its choicest gifts, unquote. In a letter he wrote, part of which is now considered LDS scripture, Joseph outlined his ideal, Quote, we claim the privilege of worshipping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. Unquote. Smith was asked once how he managed to govern such a diverse group of people, to which he replied, quote, Well, I simply teach them the truth, and they govern themselves. Unquote. Smith sometimes contrasted his group with the Methodists, which, quote, have creeds which a man must believe or be kicked out of their church, unquote. His way was different. Quote, I want, I want the liberty to believe as I please. It feels so good to not be trammeled. It does not prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine, unquote. In his personal diary, Smith wrote, I feel so good to have the privilege of thinking and believing as I please. Zina Diantha Huntington Jacobs Smith Young decided to marry Joseph Smith almost eight months after she had married Henry Jacobs. She was told that it was her decision. She had turned Smith down three times before because he was a married man. Now six months pregnant, she received a letter that informed her that an angel with a drawn sword had told him that if he didn't marry her, he would be killed. After the marriage, Jacobs, her first husband, was sent on eight missions between 1839 and 1845. When Smith was killed, Brigham Young claimed that he would act as Joseph's proxy on earth, and thus Joseph's wives were transferred to him. Zina and Brigham were married in February 1846. A few months later, Jacobs was once again sent on a mission to England. Jacobs maintained that Zina was his wife for several years, but eventually the two lost contact, and Jacobs eventually remarried. When I turned eight, I decided to enter into the covenant of baptism. I was told that it was my decision. My parents took me through the formalities of a bishop's interview, and on March 6, 1999, my sins were washed away in the waters of the baptismal font. Now, as an eight-year-old, I was truly responsible for my actions. My dad had asked me the morning before he dunked me if I wanted to drink some alcohol or try a cigarette, before it counted, and we had both laughed. Now, every night, I strained my memory to think of all the bad things I had done that day, because if I forgot about one, I'd be unworthy of the celestial kingdom. Later, I decided to apply to attend BYU, It was the only application I sent in, and I had no backup plan. I had never considered going to another college. My parents, older sister, and most of my cousins were cougars, and I was horrified at the thought that I wouldn't be accepted. Some parents offer financial aid to their children only if they choose to attend the Y. My parents paid for me to live on campus in Heritage Halls. BYU enforces an honor code that disallows growing facial hair, except mustaches, wearing immodest clothing, drinking tea, and doing anything that, quote, gives expression to homosexual feelings. Students that neglect their church meetings or visit the opposite sex during non-visiting hours can face suspension. After two semesters at BYU, I received a letter in the mail informing me that I'd be serving in Ukraine for two years, starting in July. I can't remember when I made the decision to go on a mission. I didn't give it much thought, even at the time. My fingers did the work, and suddenly I had sent in the paperwork necessary to request a mission call. When I opened and read the letter, my family and friends surrounded me, and we screamed. Hugged, and danced for joy. It was one of the happiest moments in my life. Agency only ever gets mentioned now to warn us about the dangers of using it unwisely. Church leaders now differentiate between free agency and moral agency. Free agency is the ability to make decisions. Moral agency is using that freedom to obey God and his leaders, choosing to give your God-given freedom back to God. LDS scripture often describes agency as a gift from God, but I wonder if God himself returned his eons ago. He knows the end from the beginning and can do no wrong. There is a right and wrong to every question, and he must know it and do it, or cease to be God? Should I populate this planet? Should I let Satan loose? Should I warn Adam? He knew the answers before the questions were asked. Is he trapped in perfection? A person can change her belief that a light is on in another room by going into that room and seeing for herself but a person cannot, in most cases, convince herself that the room she is in is lit if the light is turned off. Willfully choosing to believe something is what philosophers call doxastic volunteerism, and most agree that humans can't really do it, except in extreme cases. We believe what we believe, and not much can change that. When I arrived in Ukraine, Where I served my mission, my president explained to me that I had two options. I could follow the normal mission rules concerning music, which meant listening to any uplifting music, or I could follow what he called the higher law and listen to only Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Miraculously, one rule had become two. He explained the math. Every rule gave each missionary an opportunity to obey that rule. Each time a missionary obeyed a rule, he or she was entitled to a blessing. The more rules there were to obey, the more baptisms we would have as a mission. This calculus might also explain the ban our mission had on doing service and holding English classes. The same principle was taught by Elder Christofferson. As our understanding of gospel doctrine and principles grows, our agency expands. First, we have have more choices and can achieve more and receive greater blessings because we have more laws that we can obey. Think of a ladder. Each new law or commandment we learn is like one more rung on the ladder that enables us to climb higher. I was told it was my decision whether to follow the higher law or not, though I was later reprimanded by mission leadership for listening to John Williams. Growing up, I was forced to take piano lessons. I hated practicing and tried to quit several times, but my mother refused to let me stop. After a few years of angry practicing, I began to actually like the songs I was playing, It was a skill that I could use to impress my peers. I had fun mastering challenging songs that John Schmidt, a fellow Mormon, had composed. Now, though I am still not an amazing piano player, I am very glad that my mom made me continue lessons. I plan to do the same to my children.
0: How about this tender ballad Directly from the brain Of a young Joseph the prophet While gazing upon an even younger Fanny Alger Or any of the other dozen or so Subsequent serving girls He magnanimously gave to his wife Emma Girl, I've known you very well See
1: you growing And every day I've never never Be little before But now you take my breath away An angel with a sharpened sword it's time for you and me to throw our cares away Move closer to that veil of hate Here in my arms
6: you'll find your paradise Your only chance for eternal happiness If you reject
1: me now, your spirit should die Oh, say you'll always be my baby Let me help you with that clasp We'll do this forever with this new and everlasting.
0: This next essay is from Nate, um, and he didn't give us a title for his essay, so I came up with one. I called it Hasadiga Runaway. (laughs) Yeah? Hasadiga... Run away. You'll get it. You'll get it.
9: Maybe. A few years ago, I started jogging to relieve stress and get exercise. Over time, I increased my endurance as a runner until I finally decided I was going to run a half marathon. Before each training run, I would put on my jogging clothes and pop in my earbuds. I loved listening to Pandora radio while running, especially listening to songs by 90s alternative rock bands. I love Nirvana, the Foo Fighters, Weezer and Smashing Pumpkins. One Sunday I went out for an extra long run around the neighborhood. I was frustrated by the messages I had heard preached that day and I just needed to run. So I cranked up my music and hit the streets. About three miles in I was feeling good. My pace was awesome and I was getting a runner's high. And then I I started to hear the song gone away by the offspring blasting him in my headphones the beat is great for running but the words really reached me that day the song talks about a man who is grieving the death of a dear friend the lyrics read maybe in another life i could find you there the away before your time i can't deal it's so unfair leaving flowers on your grave show that i still care but black roses and Hail Marys can't bring back what's taken from me. I reach to the sky and call out your name, and if I could trade, I would. And it feels like heaven's so far away, and it feels like the world has grown cold now that you've gone away. This song on that day reached deep down into my heart. You see, my brother, who is just two years younger than me, had passed away from cancer when he was 16 and I was 18. And this song always makes me think about how much I still miss him and how we prayed and fasted for years to have him be healed. How countless priesthood holders rotated through my house and anointed him with oil and said the right magic words, but still couldn't heal him. And how just months after his funeral and while still grieving and depressed, I went on a mission because that is what I was supposed to do. This song brings back my anger and my frustration with God and his seeming impotence and incompetence. So I ran and I listened to that song. I looked up at the sky, raised both middle fingers up and exclaimed, Fuck you, God. A phrase that I had never dared say before that time. Fuck you and all the screwed up, homophobic, racist, and inaccurate things I was taught in your one true church. And then it happened. Two months later, and less than a month before I was supposed to run that half marathon, I felt a lump. I went to the doctor, and he said the dreaded word cancer. I would not be running that half marathon. No, instead, I would be getting high doses of chemotherapy over the next three months and fighting off the nasty beast growing in my body. Upon hearing my diagnosis, the first thing that came to my mind was, this is a punishment. This is what you get from turning your back on God. I felt guilty. Had I done this to myself? Am I a cautionary tale of the dangers of pride and sin? I asked these questions to one of my friends who like me is a non-believing and yet still practicing Mormon. My friend assured me that this was not the punishment of God and if it was the way that God treats his children then God is not worthy of my adoration. Because of the cancer I had to receive three rounds of extremely nasty chemotherapy. During round two I had to be in the hospital during the entire week of Thanksgiving. It was just me and my wife at the hospital, three hours away from our home and our family. I was suffering from the nasty side effects of chemo and I was not in the mood to celebrate Thanksgiving. And my poor long-suffering wife had to deal with me and my sickness. But the morning of Thanksgiving, a young research fellow who I had never met before stopped by my bed at the infusion center. You see, he was a member of the LDS Church, who happened, to be a, who happened to know a guy who was in my dad's ward. My dad and this man weren't good friends, but he knew that I was sick, and he asked the young research fellow to stop by my bed at the hospital and see what he could do for me and for my wife. The research fellow invited us to have Thanksgiving dinner with the young single adults in the area. And to be honest, it was one of the most amazing Thanksgiving dinners ever. Even though the chemo made all the food taste like pennies in my mouth, I was happy to be there. I was surrounded by people who were young and happy and alive. The bishop who was hosting the dinner was a concert pianist, and he played some of the most beautiful Christmas songs. The entire room came alive as we sang along to familiar and joyful carols. It was there that I truly felt a spiritual high, if that is such a thing. It's been two years since that Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm happy to say that I'm still cancer-free. Along the way, I have learned more about what typically gives rise to the kind of cancer that I had. It probably originated way back when I was a small embryo a tiny defect in an insanely complex orchestra of chemical reactions planted the mutation that would one day become a cancerous tumor. This was not a punishment from God set in motion by my obscenity on that Sunday run. Instead this was biology gone haywire. And what about me and God today? Well, if you think that God is the stranger, who visits you in the hospital and invites you to Thanksgiving dinner, then I say, yes, I believe in that God. And if you think that God writes you a needed note of encouragement when you are down, or sends you comfort in the form of a compassionate hug when no one else will, or takes your kids when you are in the hospital, then I say, yes, I believe in that God. But, if you think that God is a white guy with a long beard and a shiny cloak that sends plagues on his children when they build towers that are too high in the sky or hates gay people who get married or tricks scientists by burying dinosaur bones deep in the earth, then to that dude, I still reach high into the sky, middle fingers extended, and say, Fuck you, God. <laughs>
1: Montana, Big Liah,
2: Hast a digger, Pastor Pretender,
1: Yah, Pretender, Big Liah, Big Liah, no voice of the Lord.
2: For years and for years we have heard it Though behind we're on the true path In 78 they opened the gate Women's rights will be not far behind We're inching our way to inclusion Letting in all those we've kept out The lift on the band Is step one of the plan Change will come We've been left with no doubt From one day to point. that the leaders have all led astray. They're committed to hate and exclusion, and they're fixed on the opposite path. There won't be a place for women or gays. There's no end to the circle of hate.
0: This next essay is from Miriam and it's called My Response to Jonathan Haidt.
3: Jonathan Haidt shares an animation of microscopic organisms to illustrate the dynamic of living things functioning as groups. He describes the fascinating eventuality where sometime in deep prehistory, One organism swallowed another, and together they began to function as a new organism, a superorganism. This superorganism becomes stronger than the sum of its parts, more robust and more adaptable. Humanity is much like a superorganism. As social creatures, we need each other and benefit greatly from each other. Groups provide interaction that produces more strategic and material resources beneficial for our individual survival. In a way, the individual is swallowed into a social group, and the Kim chem- then becomes one of many functioning organs of the whole creature, the group. This group distinguishes its- itself, Jonathan Haidt continues, with transcendence. Euphoria and ecstasy within the group coalesce the group members into a like mindset focused on a joint belief or cause. Imagine a hunting party spread out at important landmarks on a game trail, each playing a role in finding, separating, and then killing the hunted prey. They each contribute, and for the time act in consonance as one, and they each benefit from the kill. Collaboration like this is found at virtually all levels of human society. It is in our institutions, in our traditions, in our genes, Babies are born with proportionally large heads and facial features that induce affectionate feelings in adults. They cry in ways that causes physiological distress, creating incentive for attending to their needs. Rites of passage like circumcision, quinceañeras, weddings, and funeral wakes attach meaning to different life stages and events, producing repeatable feelings of union with others and a sense of communal belonging. Participating in traditional events signals that you are in the group and Mormonism has its own brand of validation. Imagine in one moment a new move into a Mormon ward can communicate their credentials. Hi, I'm Lehi Johansson. This is my wife, Jessica, and our kids, Joseph, Natalie, there's Taylor, this one's Rai and Elizabeth is here. The males have white shirts and ties. The females have white tees and jumpers. Everyone is clean-shaven. Scriptures in aren't found in home-sown scripture satchels in their hands. This gesture occurs in a matter of seconds, but affects passage of these would-be strangers through the barrier. They are now on the other side. They are part of the ward, family members, to be congealed into predetermined roles in the super organism of the group. Hate goes over the boating race scenario, where individual members of each respective team may compete within their team, but one boat carrying an entire team works in concert to win the race against competing boats. The boat is a superorganism, members following commands, and captains issuing orders. Imagine the deep doctrine debates in high priest group or Relief Society mothers comparing and judging each other based on their groomed children. Such in-group competitions differ drastically from debates and comparisons with outsiders, and especially differ when an apostate enters the scene. The same complaint from a believing, contributing member in the boat will be treated differently than from an open apostate who is outside the boat, for example. Speaking of apostates, first, more background from hate. Human beings form cohesive groups similar to superorganisms, yet they are not the most cohesive and are not as cohesive as bees. This is where, in my opinion, humanity surmounted a threshold of existence because people can leave their groups. They can leave their groups, then form other groups. Then the new group can compete against the original group, even absorb its members. Then another group might form from leavers, which competes and so on. On a whole, this ability to break away mathematically improves our ability to adapt. Instead of being tied to one group and one type of cohesion, the superorganism groups can be variable and offer people more options, and more viable options improve adaptability. As a result, the entire human superorganism as a whole, global and dynamic, is more adaptable. Don't believe this superorganism mumbo-jumbo. Consider the people, pencil. The yellow-painted, iconic, number-two pencil with the aluminum band and eraser at the top. It literally takes hundreds of thousands of people, possibly millions, to make one pencil from scratch, to mine, find, and grow the raw resources, to build and power the ships, to transport those resources, to refine and mix those materials that eventually, after hundreds and hundreds of steps, and to, uh, these components are mechanically formed into a pencil. Go off the grid, even, and you will likely take something with you that is sophisticated and work-intensive as a pencil, be it a hammer, or seeds, or nails, or medicines try to reproduce and raise a family, and you will need such things to survive and continue in perpetuity. So, back to that cultural membrane, one more specific and tightly binding than capitalism and trade, the religions, and specifically Mormonism. Mormonism's membrane is belief centered around the claims of Joseph Smith, the passage of central authority through his male successors and the limited distribution of that authority to local male priesthood leaders. Remember the ward's new family, the Johansons? They walk into a ward of complete strangers. Consider the process by which they are to accept the new authority, the bishop, the man who has final priesthood authority over the ward and over their future participation in it. Hi, I'm Bishop Jones. Nice to meet you. Pause. Well, that's all. (laughs) The Johnsons take his divine authority on faith. Lehi, Jessica, Joseph, Natalie, Taylor, Mahanrai, and even little Elizabeth will all eventually pass through Bishop Jones' office to stand before him and be judged on their personal worthiness before God. Bishop Jones will decide... If they pass, Lehi and Jessica are showing their children they can can trust their bishop, and by extension, that they can trust all the males exercising priesthood roles in the ward. Inside the cultural Mormon membrane, there's a special protection the feeling of being safe, because we believe the same, and we believe that we believe the best beliefs. It is a warm feeling, untainted by cynicism or fighting. The feeling is produced and reproduced by the signals of language, appearance, and practice. When others signify their loyalty, we know they are one of us. Especially when priesthood males signify their loyalty, other Mormons know they can be trusted. This authority is then used thoroughly, establishing the general path of a person's entire life, but also dictating small details like what we eat, what we wear under our clothes, how we have sex, and what we do on any given day of the week. Yet, in this membrane, the priesthood authority exists exclusively through the males. Half the population does not ever have the representation in the ultimate authority of the church, be it on the ward, stake, or church level, not even in the home. Thus, none of those with a final can say can, from an experientialist perspective, see, understand, or address basic problems of the human experience faced by a near majority of human beings. Except it feels good, so good and warm, because we believe what we believe, and we believe we believe the best beliefs. And that the patriarchal order works the best of anything that works. And thus, even in people with the best intentions, there's an abundance of certainty in Mormon land. With certainty, it is very hard for doubts to encroach and disrupt the framework. Thus, it is very hard for problems, especially systemic problems, to be addressed, understood, or even seen. This is compounded by the concentration of priesthood authority, because it keeps the authorities in ignorance of experiential knowledge since it excludes half the members. This is further compounded because individual members are taught to trust priesthood authorities to the extreme on an intimate basis, making them more vulnerable to improprieties of leaders and making leaders more impervious to criticism. Thus, Mormons are working on a boat that is very good at promoting loyalty and trust in the group, and with that, many of the benefits associated with tightly supportive groups. Yet when things go wrong with the boat itself, you could say the loyalty is so tight that it takes a great deal to change the boat or fix it. I really enjoyed Jonathan Haidt's talk and how it helped me think about Mormon culture, of somewhat how it functions and how we functioned in it. Most of all, I like the idea of not merely transcending self from time to time and becoming part of something more but of transcending culture for something more and better and hopefully creating something better. There is something that makes Mormonism inevitably counterproductive to individual progress. It inhibits that thing that makes humans as adaptable as we are because Mormonism inhibits group disloyalty. Is it a coincidence that Utah is called the beehive state? Mormonism makes humans more cohesive than they should be or need to be for their own good. That is what is so untenable. And this is what ultimately damns the church. The genius of humans is that they can both collaborate in cohesive groups, but then also break away from groups to form competing alternatives, improving overall human adaptability. So inasmuch as the church denies an individual their ultimate personal authority over their own lives, it denies them their selves themselves. Stomp out this basic genius of the human condition, and you destroy collective and individual progress. My name is Rebecca, and unfortunately, I speak from experience. Also, fortunately, I also speak from experience. Most of my Immediately family left the church earlier this year. A family of nine, Hubs and I met and married at BYU. Our first three were born in Provo when we lived at Wymount Terrace. We've experienced the church in three US states and three different countries and languages. Our children are aged from six to 18, and we are so, so glad we can start course correcting now. We have two LGBT children and two agnostic kids. Since the start of this year, they can openly acknowledge those parts of themselves, and their father and I can respond to the needs of all of our children in healthier, more rational and compassionate ways. I am so happily mindful of the intuition I have and the brain I have that has led me to this place and helped me bring my family to this place. So glad to adapt and learn. Thanks, infants, for helping.
2: In the faith
0: where I was born was a culture of strict obedience and absolute deference to leaders and faith promoting stories and cautionary tales and songs and games and beliefs and customs and rituals and certain things you are supposed to wear and certain things you're not supposed to wear and green jello with carrot shavings and yada 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 and it molded my whole life and surrounded me like a metaphorical cultural membrane but then i poked around at all this stuff Cause something just didn't feel quite right. And it cracked and finally broke. And then I broke out of my metaphorical cultural membrane. We all live in a cultural membrane, a cultural membrane, a cultural membrane. We all live in a cultural membrane, a cultural membrane. A cultural membrane, we all live in a cultural membrane. A cultural membrane, a cultural membrane, Hey. we all live in a cultural membrane. This next essay is called Heraldry, and it's by Lincoln. Yeah, his name
4: is Lincoln. Suck it. Perfess, embattled sable and ore between three Stafford knots, a lion rampant, all counterchanged. Sable, a wolf rampant, holding between the forepaws paws a bottle oar. The label sable on a chief density of three points downwards oar. Two pairs bendwise slipped and leaved sable. Quarterly, one, gules, a lion rampant to sinister oar. Two, there, a serpent-erect argent-langued gules. Three, or a badger-regardant proper. Four, azure, an eagle, wings displayed and elevated oar, beaked argent and overall an escutcheon or charged with the letter H, sable. The motto, Draco Dormiens, nunquam titillandus, to be carried in an escroll beneath the shield. Did all of you get that? That is the language of heraldry which describes armorial achievements, or the emblems most of you would call coats of arms. Heraldry encompasses the formal traditions of shield and crest designs that solidified in the Middle Ages and continue to this day. A noted scholar calls it the shorthand of history. I've just read the blazons, or descriptions, of the arms of Edwin Bramall, Thomas Dunn, and Hogwarts, School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. This fascinating aspect of history was first hinted at to me in a book titled A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous Fourteenth Century. A passage casually describes someone's arms with argent, fox, and five loaves gules, another berry of six Gules. It was a peak, a hint, a small doorway. I passed over it with a shallow understanding, and though the reference was a bit opaque to me, and I didn't comprehend what lay behind the door, the words stuck in my mind as a bit peculiar, something to perhaps research another time. Several years later, and having now read the book a few times, my wife and I were planning a trip to France. Due to my love of the book, my wife rightly insisted that we make the effort to visit the medieval ruins that were once upon a time the dwelling of the book's primary character, Le Château de Cousy, in a small town 80 miles northeast of Paris. Even though the primary tower was blown up by retreating Germans in World War I, the ruins remain a fascinating historical site. The small town is still economically motivated to celebrate the old place and the Cousy coat of arms was proudly displayed on several markers and street signs on our short walk to the entrance. I didn't buy the only object in the gift shop that displayed this shield, a keychain, but I determined to revisit the book and read its description, which I did, and by doing so opened the door I mentioned earlier, this small overgrown opening in the wall behind which lay a garden of delights, every corner yielding a new, fascinating insight. Thank you, Wikipedia. Gutenberg.org, Google Books, and so on. Heraldry is a human invention, a chronicle of human creativity and exploits. To some, it represents tradition, glory, and honor. To others, it may represent the worst of class division, oppression, and exploitation, noble arrogance. To me, it's all of this and more. It exercises the mind. I'll pass on Sudoku, but let me interpret a blazon like those I read at the opening— and my mind can unravel the language into an image. Or do the opposite, present an image and let me in my novice-level fascination compose a blazon to accompany it. Like Dan Carlin, I am a fan of history. Heraldry adds another dimension to comprehending the past, how the world got to where it is now. Its visual nature adds color to that distant reflection in the mirror, and my insights into the human fabric. Coined in the terms frequency illusion, And baden meinhof phenomenon is the idea that once some person is aware of some particular thing, this thing seems to pop up all over the place. The abundance is not a recent proliferation, though some may interpret this as the case. But the mind has tuned in and is taking notice without conscious effort. Maybe you've experienced this before. I see heraldry all over the place, in movies, described in books, and so on. Speaking of which, Sir Robin's coat of arms in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, though inconsistent between the actual coat and the shield, are a humorous and well-executed exhibition of heraldic design. Now some of you may argue that the chicken could be described as courant regardant, but given the chicken is fleeing and the leg positioning, I would say it's passant regardant, but we're getting in the weeds now. The tradition continues today as seen in military, municipal, and other emblematic variations. The nice thing about heraldry is my detached fascination. I don't have a horse in the joust, as it were. As I learn of its development and quirks, I can appreciate heraldry for what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. I don't have to make excuses for the ugly parts. For example, the crest of Sir John Hawkins' arms, granted by Queen Elizabeth in 1565, depict a bound African slave, lauding the man's role in the slave trade. There are other examples of bound or defeated foes that highlight the military and violent heritage of the past. The brighter side of humanity can be observed as well. Some designs are lighthearted, with inventive or comical wordplay in the motto or design. One famous example is that of William Shakespeare, or, on a bend Sable, a tilting spear of the field headed Argent. I don't have to believe that I understood heraldry in a previous life, or that I showed my devotion to the rules of tincture before I was born and am blessed in this life because of it. I can put as much time or money into this pursuit as I choose. The reward is internal. I get insight into myself and a better understanding of what it is to be human by learning about the endeavors and expressions of other humans. This does not require my devotion, and I reap the benefits of others' work with my small investment of time and breath. I am fortunate enough to say that life for me in this day and age is wonderful. The variety of expressions, information, and imagery from around the world enlighten as no era in the past has been able to. I feel as if I am in the age of Atlantis, knowing and appreciating that the present moment will never come again. Every golden breath a cup of ambrosia to be tasted, only to remain as a brief memory. And regardless of when or how humans cease to exist, to live, to breathe, to read, to eat, to drink, to love, to cry, to hurt, to sing, to share all of these things with people who I love. This accretion of experience will come and pass. Never mind the clamoring about the next life. It is enough to live here and now. As a side note, in the news last year, the New York Times posted an article related to our president, even Donald J. Trump. When Mr. Trump purchased Mar-a-Lago in 1985, he also appropriated the arms officially granted to one Joseph Edward Davies in 1939, one of the husbands of Mar-a-Lago's previous owner, Marjorie Merriweather Post. Trump has subsequently used these arms to represent himself. This created problems in Scotland where heraldic authorities exist and the arms had already been granted officially to Mr. Davies. In short, part of Trump's workaround to use these arms has been to change certain elements, most notably the motto. It no longer reads integritas. It simply says Trump.
0: Israel, Israel, Zion's
2: army, all of us. The world, we're the right ones, they're the wrong ones.
0: Strike them all down, yeah, let's strike first. Hope of Israel, rise in might. cutting open their soft flesh with truth and right. Sound the war cry, don't strike last. Let's go
1: out and kick down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself.
6: You Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew
1: Ryan. Ashley.
6: And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones.
4: You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And
8: if you really like what you hear... Give the quorum a five star rating and write a short review on iTunes.
2: I
9: did.
1: I
2: did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer?
1: My worst crime is an inside job, dark thoughts taking over like an inside mouth. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on front. Infants on front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets light, destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on something the night. Choosing love when I pick up this night.